today. Great for spiritual experience. And they're looking for it in all kinds of different places. And I argued or tried to show you last time that as Christians, we should be for spiritual experience too. God's people throughout church history God been concerned also to know and experience God. And we said last time the way to learn about biblical spirituality is to turn to the book of Psalms. The Psalms are a treasure house of spiritual experience. It's all packed in there in the book of Psalms. And last time, a couple of Sunday nights ago, we looked together at Psalm 1. We saw that Psalm 1 presents us with the way into spiritual experience. Psalm 1 is the gateway to the whole book of Psalms. If we want the spiritual experience we find in that book, we have to come to it through Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says the key is meditation on God's Word. Meditation is the way to be free from the sinful patterns of thinking and behaving and relating that are all around us. Those are patterns that work our way into our lives, work their way into our lives. According to Psalm 1, the way out of those sinful patterns is through meditation on God's Word. Meditation leads to a stable and a fruitful Christian life. When the man or woman who belongs to God meditates regularly on God's Word, They become, in the words of Psalm 1, like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. According to Psalm 1, meditation is the key to deep change and to fruitfulness in our Christian lives. Then last time we went on to look at some definitions of biblical meditation. We said meditation is not Bible reading or Bible study. But it does flow out of Bible reading and Bible study. And we said that meditation is not prayer, but it does lead to prayer. In fact, it's been called the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. It takes us beyond the kind of superficial prayer that says, God bless him and God save her and God give me a promotion. I'm not trying to rubbish those kind of prayers, but meditation leads us to deeper prayer. And we looked then at a few definitions of meditation. I'll just mention a couple of those again to remind us what we're talking about. One definition says, Meditation is deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding application, and prayer. Another definition. Meditation is not the simple reading of the Word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read, pondering over it, and applying it to our hearts. That definition is from George Muller, who I mentioned this morning. 
And I think probably all of us have had the experience of reading our Bibles and finding that what we read just passed through our minds like water through a pipe. Another writer uses a very similar picture. He says it's possible to encounter a torrential amount of God's truth, but without absorption, you will be little better for the experience. Meditation is absorption. Some of the best definitions of meditation come from the Puritans. Their Christian lives were built around this practice. And in fact, they knew much more about it than we tend to know about it today. So this is from Richard Baxter. He says, Meditation is fixing, forcing, and ordering our thoughts around some truth to affect our own hearts and souls with the matter of the things contained in it. That's a bit of a mouthful. I'll read it again because I think it's a really helpful definition. Meditation is fixing, forcing, and ordering our thoughts around some truth to affect our own hearts and souls with the matter of the things contained in it. And I said last time that personally, I find the most helpful way to think of meditation is to describe it as formative reading rather than informative reading. Informative reading is getting information from Scripture. What happened? Who said what? And we certainly need that. But we also have to go on to formative reading. That's reading that puts us in the place for the Holy Spirit to form our hearts and minds and wills into the likeness of Christ. That's what meditation is. It's going to God's word in order to be formed, not just informed. After that recap tonight, I want to do two things. The second of those is we're going to finish by looking at a plan for meditation. Because I'm hoping to encourage you to start to meditate on scripture if you don't already do that. So we'll think step by step about how to do it. And I'm going to give you Martin Luther's plan for meditation. But before that, we're going to go back to the book of Psalms and we're going to hear more about meditation and its effects on our lives. So if you'd like to turn back to the book of Psalms, this time to Psalm 119. You'll find our passage on page 619 in the church Bible. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers. For I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, 
I hit every wrong path. This is God's word. Psalm 119 is a long prayer in praise of God's word. It's by far the longest psalm, 176 verses. And it's an acrostic psalm. That's why it's divided into 22 sections. And probably in your Bible, there's a funny little symbol over each section. Those symbols are the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And in each eight-verse section, each verse in the original language begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's an acrostic. And the intricate detail of this psalm, along with its length, tell us something about the place of God's word in the spiritual life of God's people. It has the significant place in our spiritual lives, or it should have. And it's worth noting that Psalm 119 begins with the same word as Psalm 1, blessed or happy. In fact, we can see Psalm 119 as an extended working out of the heart of Psalm 1. We could call it a long meditation on Psalm 1. Psalm 119 verse 1 says, Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. That's picking up the language of Psalm 1. It talks about the ways we walk in. In other words, our patterns of thinking and behaving and relating. Psalm 119 is about the connection between God's word and walking in God's ways. And this evening we're looking briefly at this little section we just read, verses 97 to 104. This section teaches us five truths about meditation. First of all, in verse 97, meditation flows out of a love for God's word and it fuels a love for God's word. The psalmist begins here by saying that he loves God's word. We noticed last time that the word behind law here is the word Torah. Torah can be used to refer specifically to the Old Testament laws, such as the Ten Commandments. But it can also be used, and it often is, to refer to the whole of God's instruction, the whole of his written word. And that's most likely the meaning when we find it here in the book of Psalms. In fact, Psalm 119 uses eight different words to refer to what we know as God's word. Our little section has five of them. God's law, God's commands, God's statutes, God's precepts, and God's word. Those are all different ways of talking about the same thing. God's written instruction. So the psalmist says that he loves God's word. And then he explains how his love for God's word shows itself. He meditates on God's word all day long. In other words, he turns it over in his mind. He daydreams about it. Whenever his mind gets the chance, it turns to God's word. I don't think the psalmist is saying he walks around and he sits at his desk with his nose constantly in his Bible. What he means is his thoughts like to wander back to God's word when they get the chance throughout the day. All of us claim to love God's word. But Matthew Henry has pointed out that what we love, we love to think of. 
Someone else has said, the way to discover what we really love is to notice where our thoughts go when they're free to go wherever they want. In other words, what do we daydream about? Whenever our thoughts have a chance to drift during the day, whenever they're free to follow their own course, where do they go? Who or what do they fix on or settle on? That's what we love. What we love, we love to think of. If we daydream about a bigger house, that's what we love. Or a certain relationship, that's what we love. That's what our heart is choosing to meditate on whenever it gets the chance. If our daydreams drift towards God and his grace and his instruction, that's what we love. That's what our heart is set on. And I would guess that for many of us, that's a pretty discouraging thought. And many of us can honestly say, whenever my thoughts are free to go wherever they will, they go to God, to his greatness and his grace and his teaching. It might be discouraging for us to realize where our heart likes to focus. But the good news is, if we discipline ourselves to meditate on Scripture, then the love of our hearts will begin to change. We're not stuck with whatever our heart currently loves to daydream about. We can work to redirect the love of our heart. That begins to happen when we set aside regular time, not just to read God's Word, but to meditate on it. That will begin to wean our hearts off other things so that our thoughts do wander to God throughout the day. We could put it this way. If unintentional meditation on God's word in our daydreams happens because we love God's word, it's also true that intentional meditation on God's word fuels our love for God's word. It's a bit of a circle. We meditate on it because we love it, and we love it because we meditate on it. But the key point is, it's a circle that you and I can influence. We can increase our love for God's word by choosing and disciplining ourselves to meditate on it. Meditation flows out of a love for God's word, and it fuels a love for God's word. Second, in verses 98 to 101. Meditation leads to wisdom, application, and obedience. Look at verse 98. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. Biblical wisdom is not something we get zapped with the moment we put our trust in Jesus. It's something we acquire across the course of our lives through careful meditation on God's word. In this context, that's how the psalmist got his wisdom. He goes on to say in verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. What does he mean by saying he has more insight than all his teachers? It may well mean that meditation gives us more insight into our own hearts than any of our teachers could ever have. In large part, meditation is about thinking out the personal implications of God's truth for us. When we do that, the sin in our hearts is going to be exposed. So I don't think this is saying meditation gives us more intellectual knowledge than our teachers. But it will give us more knowledge of the depths of our own hearts. 
And sincere meditation does not stop with wisdom and insight. It leads us to obedience. Look at verse 100. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. The first verse of the book of Psalms says, Blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. And when we looked at that in Psalm 1, we've already uh, reminded ourselves, we said that was speaking about the sinful patterns of thinking and behaving and relating that are all around us. They're all around us like water around fish. The way to freedom from those sinful patterns was also given in Psalm 1, meditation on God's Word. That's what brings deep change in our lives. And here, in another section on meditation, the psalmist is testifying to the reality of this in his own life. He keeps his feet from every evil path. Deep change in your life is unlikely to happen by me standing up here and berating you all from the pulpit, telling you to pull your socks up and get your act together. That might result in some short-term external change. But deep heart change happens when we dwell on God's Word, and God works through His Word. By His Spirit, He changes our hearts. Meditation leads to wisdom, application, and obedience. Third in this section, meditation puts us in the pathway of the Holy Spirit's work. Verse 102 says, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. This is picking up on what I mentioned a moment ago. God teaches us by his Spirit through his word. I don't want to suggest that we are capable of changing our own hearts. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But we can put ourselves in a position to be changed by the Spirit. I mentioned that God is not likely to just zap us with wisdom out of nowhere. We have to pursue God's wisdom. And here too, God is not likely to teach us if we never put ourselves in a position to be taught. That's not the way God has chosen to work. This verse occurs in the context of the psalmist's life of meditation. He has been taught and changed and given the ability to obey because he put himself in a position to be worked on by God's Spirit. I'm not suggesting that meditation is an overnight cure, it's not a magic wand. I'm not suggesting either we're going to be bowled over every day with amazing insights. But the words of Scripture and the testimony of God's people tell us that over the course of time, we will be taught by God. God's Spirit will work through His Word. It's inevitable. It's God's way. Meditation puts us in the pathway of the Holy Spirit's work. Fourth, meditation gives us a taste for God's word. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
I can remember a time in my life when I didn't like coffee. It's hard to remember back to those days, but there was a time. I'm not like that anymore. For better or worse, this is personal confession, I have acquired a taste for a rich, bold Starbucks coffee, or Costa coffee. In fact, Steve and Cheryl discovered last week that my ideal day off is to sit in Costa coffee over in Litchfield with one of those two-handled mugs. The point is that Scripture is also an acquired taste for us. Our hearts are sinful. We don't have a natural taste for the words of a perfectly holy God. But regular meditation helps us acquire a taste for it. Through meditation, we begin to appreciate the sweetness of God's word. When we take time to meditate on scripture, we're forced to slow ourselves down. As we'll see later, in meditation, we can only focus on one or two verses, turning them over in our minds. When we do that over time, we do begin to taste the sweetness. We begin to acquire the taste. I've already quoted Matthew Henry. He said, meditation enables us to experience both the power and the savor of God's word. That's what the psalmist is testifying to here in verse 103. Meditation gives us a taste for God's word. And finally in this passage, meditation brings deep change. Verse 104, I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hit every wrong path. In verse 101, the psalmist said he avoided wrong or evil paths. Here he adds that he also hates those paths. There is a kind of grim Christianity that makes efforts to avoid sin. But all the while, it finds sin attractive and it believes it's probably quite a lot of fun. We look longingly at sin, but well, we're Christians, so we aren't allowed to do it. That's not how the psalmist feels about sin. His meditation has brought deep change into his heart. His affections, his loves, and his will have been changed. His heart has been changed to love what God loves and hate what God hates. He doesn't just avoid wrong paths, he hates them. He avoids them because he wants to, not just because he has to. And don't get me wrong, it's a positive thing to avoid sin because God commands us to. But how much greater is it to avoid sin because we love God's command? And we agree with his command and we see the beauty and the wisdom of his command. That's the kind of deep change meditation can bring in our hearts. I don't know what you're making of this so far. Maybe this is a very foreign concept. Maybe not. But until we actually begin to do it, it's probably going to stay a foreign concept. So what I want to do in the next few moments is just walk through with you a plan or a method for biblical meditation. This is not the only way to do it, but we have to start somewhere. And the only way to start, really, is to persevere with someone else's tried and tested method 
until we get the hang of it, until we get a feel for it. Then we're able to branch out with our own. So I'm going to give you what is basically Martin Luther's method. One day, Luther was getting his hair cut, and his barber asked him how to pray. Luther went home that day, and he wrote a little leaflet called A Simple Way to Pray for a Good Friend. And actually, it's a leaflet about meditation. So I've taken Luther's basic plan, and I've added material from some other places to try to fill it out and explain it a little bit more for us. And then I've tweaked it according to what I personally find to be useful. I've put it on a stack of these little bookmarks, so you can pick one of these up at the end if you're interested, so you can just see what's on the screen and be sure that it's all on here. I'm just going to lead you through it now on the screen. So what appears behind me is word for word what's on this little stack of bookmarks. Let me just summarize it first. You read a passage and then you focus in on one or two verses. And then Luther says, you make a garland of four strands. The strands of a garland are woven together. And Luther's four strands are teaching. So what truth does this verse teach? Then adoration or thanksgiving based on that teaching. Then confession based on the teaching. And then supplication or petition based on the teaching. And then once you've thought through your garland, you just turn it into prayer. So let me flesh that out a bit. A plan for biblical meditation, 20 minutes. Obviously, this can be extended to whatever you want. If you have 25 minutes, so much the better. If you have half an hour, so much the better again. But I base this on a 20-minute slot just to show you it's possible to do something meaningful in a fairly short time. I would recommend finding a regular time and place to do this. If you decide you're just going to do it whenever, you'll never do it. Before meditation comes biblical intake, and I've allocated five minutes for that. And before reading, it's important to begin, just in a few words, by asking God to speak to you through his word today, to illuminate your mind, warm your heart, and mold your will. Only God can do that. Then you read your passage for the day, one to two chapters or less. Some of you already have a Bible reading plan. Lots of different plans. Some of you are using E100. And this will fit in with any reading plan that you happen to be using. You might have to slow the pace as you go through the reading plan. But you can let the plan give you your passage for the day. Or you may want to go back to a passage you've just looked at here on Sunday. Some of you may be using devotional notes that just give you a verse a day. But I would encourage you to read more than that. It's difficult to meditate on a verse if you haven't read the context around that verse. And it's good to move beyond someone else's meditation on the passage. That's really what devotional notes are. It's good to move beyond someone else's insight and actually do your own meditation. So notes are okay, but I would encourage you to step out onto the water and try walking for yourself on this. 
So you've read a chunk of scripture, you've done some informative reading, now you move to formative reading. Meditation, I've allocated 10 minutes for this. First of all, you reflect on the teaching. You slow down. We find that hard, some of us. And you focus in on one or two verses at most. Or maybe if you're reading through a narrative or stories, you just focus on one scene in a narrative. I say that about narrative because if you focus in on a verse that says Jesus walked down the road, it's not going to get you very far in your meditation. So, for example, in the Gospels, when you come to Jesus' miracles, you might want to focus in on one scene. Say, for example, Jesus calming the storm, that's five or six verses. And then you might meditate on that incident as a whole. But say you've read a chapter, just pick something that stood out to you as you read your passage. If something stands out because you really can't make head nor tail of it, then don't try meditating on it. Note it down and ask someone about it later. Or maybe borrow a commentary from the church library and look it up. Or invest in a good study Bible. Something that's going to help you with the tricky bits when you need to have some help. But pick a meditation verse or a couple of verses that are fairly clear to you. Then you reread those verses or the verse that you're going to focus on. And then you begin to ask questions. Bearing in mind the context, what does this tell me about God or Christ? Who he is, what he has done. What does it tell me about me? What I should be, what I should think or feel or do, who I am. Not every passage is going to tell you about all of those things. But asking those questions of every passage will produce something. And you'll need some sort of notebook or journal if you're going to do this. When you ask your questions, you'll want to put a T in the margin for teaching. And then just a few words, state what it teaches about God or about yourself. So you might look at the verse, you might think about it and come up with two or three things. You could list them in the margin as T1, T2, T3. Some days, maybe only one thing. I'll give you an example. In Luke chapter 12, verses 6 to 7, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So if you were meditating on this, you would ask, What does this tell me about God or Christ? Who he is, what he has done. What does it tell me about me? Who I should be, who I am. This is what I wrote in my notebook for these verses. T1 in the margin. God remembers and knows intimately everything and everyone he has created. Even the least among his creatures. T2 in the margin. I am more precious to God than many of the other creatures he knows and remembers. Sparrows, for example. T3 in the margin. Therefore, I should not be afraid. It's very simple. This is just about fixing our attention on what's there. We're not trying to write an epistle. Although some of us may find ourselves beginning to get in that mode. 
But we move on then to adoration. We ask the question, how can I love and adore God on the basis of this teaching? Does it highlight specific aspects of his greatness or his wisdom or his grace to me? So again, on the same passage, I wrote an A in the margin for adoration, and beside it, just five words. God both knows and cares. That's it. That's the reason this passage gives me to love and adore God. He knows and he cares. Then you move to confession or repentance. How can I confess to God on the basis of this teaching? What sin of omission or commission does this verse reveal to me? Are there promises that I am failing to claim? Examples in the text that I'm failing to emulate? Commands that I'm failing to obey? What false emotions or wrong behavior or bad attitudes result in me when I forget or disregard this teaching? Anger? Fear? Despondency? And this is where the Holy Spirit may begin to use our meditation to do some surgery on our hearts. So here I'll expose myself a little bit. I wrote in my notebook, besides C in the margin for confession, often I react to situations as if God does not know or care. In other words, often I fail to grasp hold of the truth that this passage is teaching me. How much of my anger or my fear or my despondency is a result of failing to grasp hold of this truth? And at this point, the Holy Spirit might begin to convict us. He might bring to our minds a specific example of this from our lives. We confess it to God. We note it down, at least, at this point. Then we move on to supplication and offering. So what can I ask God for on the basis of this teaching? What needs to change in my life? Meditation helps us move beyond asking God just to change our circumstances and we begin to ask him to change our hearts as he exposes our hearts. So I wrote in my notebook beside an S in the margin, I need to remember both your sovereignty and your care. The cross shows me that you care. So I was asking God to take this particular truth and lodge it firmly in my heart. And then it's very important that we go on to ask, what specific response will I make to this teaching? How can I offer up my heart and life in a new way or in deeper surrender to God? I didn't come up with anything for that on this day. We're not always going to be able to for each of these. It's not a rigid, regimental process. But I could have thought of what I knew was going to be ahead of me that day. Maybe there was something that I was apprehensive about that day. I could have committed to God to hold on to this truth as I faced those specific things in the day. Another example, if we were meditating on the passage we looked at this morning in the service, God might convict us about a brother or sister we need to forgive. He might convict us about something in our lifestyle that might cause others to sin. 
If our meditation is going to change us, then we have to respond to these promptings of the Spirit. Incidentally, that's why we meditate on Scripture, not on the back of our hand. Meditating on Scripture helps make sure the promptings that come to us are really from the Spirit. And finally, prayer. I've given this five minutes. If you have longer, of course you can take longer. You just turn points two to four into prayer. You go back through the notes that you've scribbled down and you use them to pray. Adoring God, confessing to God, and so on. And if you're then going to pray for others, you can use these points to pray specifically for them too. Rather than just saying, God bless them today. The great thing about this is that when we meditate like this, when we really focus in on just a little nugget of God's word, it will come back to us later. In the shower or the car or cutting the grass. And if it doesn't come back to us automatically, we can very easily bring it to mind. It's not hard to remember a little phrase like God both knows and cares. And so our morning meditation, if that's when we do it, can go on percolating through our mind throughout the whole day. We can bring it to mind throughout the day. I think that's what the psalmist means when he says, I meditate on your word all day long. When we meditate like this, we can then go on chewing on it all day long. And then I've put at the bottom, persevere. If this is new to us, We're only going to learn to do it by doing it. And we're not going to get the hang of this in a couple of days. One of the most helpful people I've found on this is a pastor called Tim Keller. And he says we should give this at least a month before we can expect to feel comfortable with it. Because we have to discipline our minds to focus and dig into the verse we're looking at. We have to think it out. And we may not be used to that. But the fruits of it are worth persevering for. As I said before, we're not going to be bowled over every single day that we do this. Some days we're going to struggle to find anything. We're going to struggle to concentrate and focus. Some days I read a passage and I think, what can I focus on here? But if we look hard enough, if we pray again asking God to open our eyes, then we will find something. Paul says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, Having said that, the book of Job, for example, might not be the best place to start with this. Actually, definitely do not start with the book of Job. Try the Gospels or the New Testament letters or the Psalms. Earlier in the service, we had a reading from the book of Joshua. Now, Joshua was not a scholar. He was not an academic. He was a soldier. He went out every day to do hard, dangerous, physical work. And yet God said to him, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do everything written in it then you will be prosperous and successful. Meditation on God's word is not just for scholars or for academics. 
It's for Christians like you and me who go out into the world every day to fight the good fight of the faith. And so I hope that I've gone some way tonight towards enthusing you about this. So please, at the end, if you're at all interested, take one of these, and there are, as you can see, more than enough for everyone who's here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word you have told us is like fire. It's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. It's useful, you have told us, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And as your people, we want to put ourselves in a place for your spirit to work in us through the fire and hammer of your word. We want to be trained in righteousness by your spirit through your word. So will you help us? If we're already in the habit of doing this, then help us to keep going. If this is new to us, then give us the hunger and the discipline and the perseverance to make it part of our lives, just like the psalmist did. Amen. Our last song is a prayer that God will work in us by his Spirit. It's Breathe on Me.